Um, it seems to me that um, maybe more than ever at the moment, Christians need a, uh, a firm grasp, a solid grip, a healthy trust um, in the sovereignty of God. Um, we, we need a belief that's not just in our heads, not just a kind of you know, intellectual belief, but one that will actually change how we live and affect how we feel. Um, seems to me to be a huge priority um, in, in the world that we now inhabit, that we have a, a solid confidence in God's governance of his world. You know, an, an assurance that despite the, uh, despite the seeming chaos, you know, despite the, the uncertainty that we see all around us if we you know, look at the news or in our social media feeds or maybe in our own lives as well, we see that there is a, a centre of control at the heart of the universe and an all-powerful God who sits there and is in charge and in control of his world. And I think we need that. Because it's so easy to panic, isn't it? Um, you know, we can, we can look at what's been going on in the world. Uh, for example, global pandemic, uh, cost of living increase, war in Ukraine, and so on. We can imagine, can't we, that the world's out of control. You know, we can imagine that chaos reigns. Um, or maybe we can look much closer to home. We can find that, um, try as we might to take control of our own lives and make plans and preparations for the future, life just keeps throwing us curveballs. And they, they shake our confidence and they leave us overwhelmed with, with concern about the future. You know, maybe it's the, the health that I once had that has gone in the space of a doctor's appointment. Or maybe it's the job security that I used to have that suddenly kind of evaporated with a redundancy notice. Um, and, and all of a sudden, my kind of the rug of my security is pulled out from under me and I'm, I'm crippled with anxiety or panic rises to the surface. What's happening? What's, what's going on? Everything seems out of control. Um, or I can look at how the culture views Christians like me uh, at the moment. Maybe you've seen how everyone has been piling in on Kate Forbes this week, the SNP leadership candidate, and, and the backlash she's, she's received and the loss of backing that she's received simply for being open about her Christian beliefs. And we think, well, what hope is there? You know, when, when holding Christian beliefs seems to be rendering people too immoral for high public office. So how do we cope? How do we cope as God's people when the events that we see in our news feeds and see all around us causes our confidence to be shaken and, and a sense of worry or panic to kind of rise within us? Well, I think we need a healthy belief in the sovereignty of God, don't we? We need to be assured that despite the chaos that, that we often imagine rules our world, that there is a control centre at the heart of the universe and there's a king who sits there. And, and it's to that control centre at the heart of the universe that we're taken, I think, in Revelation 4 and 5. And, and what I'd, I'd love us to see in these couple of chapters this morning is that in the control room of the universe, there sits a king, that's chapter 4, and that king has a plan, that's chapter 5. So have a look with me at chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2, where John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. 
And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So just just kind of imagine the scene a bit here. You know, I think John's brain must have already been sort of buzzing with everything that the the risen and glorified Christ has just told him to write down in in chapters 2 and 3, that these seven messages to the churches. When heaven is opened, verse 1, and he hears the voice of Jesus again, and he's invited in to see the control centre at the heart of the universe, if you like. In other words, he's invited to see behind the scenes, as it were, to to see the realities of our world from, from above, from, from heaven's perspective, if you like, rather than simply from below, from our own perspective. That's a reminder to us, of course, isn't it, that this world, you know, the world that we see around us, is not all there is. Uh, that there's a whole other and, and unseen world that exists side by side with the world that we see. And, and I don't know what you might uh, have expected to find in such a place, but notice what John finds there. Look, verse 2, he finds a throne... With someone sitting on it. A throne stood in heaven with someone seated on the throne. Now doesn't that encourage you? Straight away doesn't that encourage you? At the helm of the universe there is not nothing and there's not something. There is someone. And what's he doing? Well he's sitting on his throne. Right? In other words he's a king. He's a king who's in charge of all that he's made and you might have noticed as we read that chapter four did you notice that the whole chapter is kind of dominated by the throne did did you spot that that everything else in the chapter is mentioned in relation to the throne you see that verse three round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Or verse 4, round the throne were 24 thrones. Or verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which were the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, verse 6, there was, uh, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And and so it goes on. Do you you see the point? The throne of God the Father is the centrepiece everything revolves around the throne we're being told time and time again that despite all the all the threats and seductions facing his people in the world that we've been thinking about in the last couple of chapters that God is at the center of it all and he's on his throne he's the king now of course um it's one thing to see that God is on the throne, isn't it? But that kind of immediately raises the question maybe whether that makes any difference. You know, um, on the 6th of May this year, King Charles is going to be on his throne, isn't he, in Westminster Abbey. Um, in all of his finery with the coronation crown being placed on his head. Does he have any real power? Not really. You know, he's basically a symbolic ruler, isn't he? A ruler without any real power or or influence because the real power lies elsewhere. I was tempted to say in Parliament, but I'm not sure whether that's even true anymore. But anyway, you know what I mean? Um, (laughs) But but what about God the Father? Is is his throne in heaven like that? You know, does he actually rule from there or does he have any control over the events in our world or does he just kind of observe from there? You know, because the real power lies elsewhere. 
Well, just just have a look. Discover more about this king who sits on the throne. First of all, verse 3, he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, which are kind of precious stones, of course. So John's trying to tell us something about the beauty of God there. As as he beheld this throne in the control centre of the universe, he's kind of stunned and captivated by the beauty that emanated from the person who sat there. It was like gazing at beautiful jewels that just leave you awestruck. So, so not like staring into the sun. Okay, you know, when you stare at the sun, you want to cover your eyes, don't you, in case you go blind. But this is not a light that made you want to turn away from it, it, it but rather kind of stare in wonder at it. You know, be captivated by it, be drawn in by it. By, by the sheer beauty that emanated from the one who sat there. And, and what causes God to be that beautiful? Um, I, I guess, you know, with our sort of image style, beauty obsessed culture, we might automatically be thinking that it's connected with his outward appearance in some way. I think there's much more to it than that, isn't there? The idea seems to be that any outward beauty stems from the beauty of his inner character and, and, and qualities, what he's like on the, on the inside. I guess we see something similar sometimes in one another uh, uh, quite often, don't we? You know, um, maybe not all of us are blessed in the looks department, are we? Some of us have got a face for radio, as they say. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, if those people have a, have a beautiful character... It shines through, doesn't it? In a tangible way. Their, their inner beauty shines through and we see it, don't we? And we're, we're kind of drawn to it, aren't we? It's an attractive thing. And, and with God, we see the same thing, only displayed to perfection. You know, his perfect goodness. It's, it's got a visible impact. John sees it and he's kind of transfixed by, by the sheer beauty of God's character. So what is this person, this king, who sits on the throne of the universe like? Well, the first thing we see is that he's beautiful. But the second thing we see is that he's gracious. Have a look at the end of verse 3. Round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns, on their heads. And, and the mention of the rainbow there, I think I don't think that's a comment about, you know, God's preferred choice of interior decoration or something in his throne room. I think it's a lot more than that. I'm sure God loves the amazing display of colour that a rainbow is. I'm sure it's that. But it's not just he's not just a God who emanates beauty himself, is he? He's a God that loves beauty too. So I'm I'm sure that's there. He he created the rainbow and everything else around us, of course. But the presence of the rainbow here, I think, has way more significance than just its beauty. Um, I think it's supposed to remind us of that covenant with Noah that, that God made after the flood that we, we find in the book of, of Genesis. We read about it in Genesis 8 and 9, of course, don't we? And, and many of us will be very familiar, won't we, with God's promise, the, the assurance he gave that he would not send a, a, a global flood ever again on the earth and that neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains seed time and harvest, 
cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Do you see? God is gracious. It's maybe a reminder of God's graciousness. We, we take our weather, you know, really for granted, don't we? Even, even now, you know, when it's behaving more erratically than it used to because of climate change, we, we still expect it to do roughly what it's always done, don't we? But actually what we're being told here is that the very viability of life on our planet is a gracious provision. A provision from the God who has every right to wipe us off the face of his planet. The only reason he hasn't done so is because he's gracious in his provision. I think the rainbow reminds us of that. Notice that he's not only gracious in his provision, though, but in his appointments. Um, Do you notice what surrounds the throne in verse 4? It's these 24 other thrones, isn't it, with people called elders sitting on them. Scholars differ a bit about exactly who these uh, 24 people elders represent. Most of them seem to uh, agree, though, these these elders are are angelic beings who are representing, uh, if you like, the whole of God's people across the Old and the New Testament. Again, the number is significant. Numbers are very significant in Revelation. 24 um, uh, uh, may well be representative of the 12 Old Testament patriarchs, uh, together with the 12 New Testament apostles, so used to kind of represent the complete people of God across history, if you like. But why are they on thrones? Well, because of the gracious appointment of God who wants to share his rule. That, that's actually the storyline of the Bible, isn't it? Ever since, the, ever since the Garden of Eden, humanity has been given the chance to rule God's world under him. But of course, in our sin, we blew it. Yet because God is gracious, he gives us this promise again, doesn't he? That although we don't deserve it, yet in his new creation we'll rule again. We we will be joint rulers with God and stewards of his new heavens and new earth. Not quite sure exactly how that's going to work out in practice yet, but of course it's going to be perfect, isn't it? It's a fabulous promise from God because the one who sits on the throne is gracious. But I think the third thing we're told about him is that the person who sits on the throne of the universe is powerful. Did did you notice what comes from the throne in verse 5? From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Lightning's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? I think there's enough energy in a bolt of lightning to kill you. I think several people have found out, nearly found out. So just imagine the power that's necessary to create the lightning in the first place. The God who sits on the throne has immense power. Now, that ought to make us kind of quake in our boots a bit, don't you think? Um, Maybe you remember the, the Old Testament people of God having exactly that reaction when God appeared to them at Mount Sinai after the exodus from Egypt. Do you remember in Exodus 19? When God appeared to them on the mountain, a kind of thick covering of cloud and, and lightning and thunder accompanied him. And, and their reaction, do you remember it? All the people in the camp trembled. I wonder, friends, when the last time was we trembled at the power of God. You know, it, it does seem to me that sometimes we can be guilty of kind of domesticating God. You think? When he is a person of, of awesome power such that he only has to speak 
and, and a fully functioning universe is created. There's, there's a lovely, uh, perhaps you've read the books or seen the film, there's a lovely kind of well-known scene in C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, isn't there, when, when the youngest of the children, you remember Susan, um, she's being told about the great Aslan, you know, who's the, the Christ figure in the book, of course, and, and she's told that Aslan is a lion, the lion, you know, the great lion. And she begins to tremble. And she says, oh, you know, is he quite safe? I, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And, and she's told, who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Friends, that's a great picture, isn't it? The one who sits on the throne at the control center of the universe is not safe, but he's good. He's powerful. He's the king. But I love this as well about him in verse 6 because um, the person who sits on the throne of the universe is calm. Verse 6 says, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass-like crystal, which is a description, of, I think, of how unflustered God is by the apparent chaos that we see around us. Sea often symbolizes sort of chaos and turmoil in the Bible, of course, but the sea here is under God's feet. It's before the throne, and it's therefore as still as glass, just no ripple at all. You see, in the control center of the universe, he's not a God who's tearing his hair out, trying to process everything that's coming his way. No, there's a, there's a calmness in heaven. But don't confuse the calmness with apathy, because this isn't a picture of a God who doesn't care, but a God who's in complete control. That's what people who are in complete control do, isn't it? They're, they're calm. And the one who sits on the throne of the universe is calm because he's in complete control. Um, he's also holy. Um, have a look at verses uh, six to eight. We get there uh, um, introduced to another uh, um, a kind of number of otherworldly creatures, don't we? You can see a lion there, one like a lion, another like an ox, um, third with a, a face like a man, fourth like an eagle. And, and although it, it might be interesting, I, I guess, um, uh, to think about who these creatures represent, and I, I think they're, well, they are images drawn from Ezekiel's vision of God's throne in Ezekiel chapter 1 and also from Isaiah's uh, vision in Isaiah 6. I, I think they're probably meant to represent the, the whole kind of animate creation, if you like, sort of united together in the praise of God. But actually what's way more important here is not who these creatures are, but what they say. And you can see that at the end of verse 8. Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. In other words, they're shouting out that the one who sits on the throne is not like everyone else. Right? He's perfect. He's, he's free from sin. And, and he's distinct. He's not part of creation. He's eternal. That The Lord God Almighty is holy. He's other. Friends, that's so vital for us to remember, isn't it? 
That when we contemplate what's going on, you know, in our lives or in the world around us, when we, when we contemplate the threats and seductions we face in trying to live for Christ in that kind of a world, and we're tempted towards worry and anxiety and fear and panic, who's in control of all this mess? Who's going to sort out all of this chaos? That we're reminded that the God who is on the throne of the universe stands outside the mess. Right? He's holy and distinct, and so he's separate from all the chaos. He's not tainted by the mess of our world, but rather he's distinct from it all. And he's both all good and he's all powerful, which means he can step in and he will step in to sort out the brokenness and the mess and, and the seeming chaos of our world when he decrees that the time is right. You see, the one who sits on the throne is holy. But there's one last thing I'd love us to see in chapter 4 here, which is that the one who sits on the throne deserves to be worshipped. Right? Have a look at what the elders do in verses 9 to 11. Uh, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And you notice that the kind of two motivations there to worship God, isn't there? Firstly, because he's the creator, right? And secondly, because he's the sustainer, the sustainer of all of life. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, for you created all things, and by your will they existed, or they have their being. So all glory and honor and power belong to you, do you see? It's quite a chapter, isn't it? We've just scratched the surface of it this morning, but even from doing that, we can see that this is a chapter that's kind of um, uh, chock full of really stirring theology. It's designed to give us a healthy belief in the sovereignty of God. A belief that despite the apparent chaos of, of our world, God's people have every reason to keep believing that at the heart of everything, in, in the control room of the universe, is someone. And that someone is a sovereign God who is in perfect control of everything. There's not been a coup in heaven, right? There hasn't been a takeover or a revolution or a power grab by the forces of evil, right? The, the powerful creator and sustainer of the universe remains calm in his control center, which means, friends, that we don't need to worry or panic. So in the control center of the universe, there sits king. Okay. But just briefly as we finish, have a quick look at chapter 5 with me and see that this king has a plan, which is vital, isn't it? Because although everything we read about God in chapter 4 is amazing... If we stopped at the end of chapter 4, we still might wrongly conclude that although God is gracious and powerful and calm and so on, uh, that, that all that really does, all he really does from the throne room of heaven is just to react to situations as they occur. Yeah, I mean, he might be able to deal with them when they do happen, but is that all he can do? Is the king who's in the control room of the universe simply reactive 
Or is he proactive? Well, chapter 5 tells us that on the throne of the universe is a proactive king, a king who has a plan. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 5 with me. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And we actually we discover what this scroll is in, in the next couple of chapters, six and seven. And it turns out to be God's plan of judgment and salvation for the whole human race. As, as we'll see, that the plan has an element of uh, permissiveness to it, where God allows uh, evil to flourish as a judgment on, on humanity's uh, uh, sinful rebellion against him. But then there's also the, the personal visible return of Jesus, which will usher in the, the final judgment of all. But through all of that, we'll see the protection of God's people. Not, not, uh, not God protecting them from any and all harm, but his spiritual protection of them so that they will, in, they will endure to the end. And, and so they'll enter uh, eternity in heaven. And all of this is on the scroll, right? It's God's plan of judgment and salvation for the human race. And yet, you can see, verse 1, there's a problem in that the scroll is sealed. And, and the fact that the scroll is sealed doesn't just mean that you can't see what's in the scroll, but that a sealed scroll means that the contents can't be implemented, That's the problem, do you see? God's plan cannot be implemented. And so we see this strong angel, look in verse 2, proclaim in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? In other words, who's who's worthy to implement God the Father's plan of of judgment and salvation? Verse 3 tells us, no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to either open the scroll or even look into it. So no wonder John here reacts the way he does in verse 4, do you see? I began to weep loudly, right? There's there's uncontrollable tears because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. We can just imagine what's going on in John's head, can't we? You know, he's imagining a world where where evil will always triumph, where, where justice will never be done, where God's people would have no certain future because God's plan of judgment and salvation is is kind of locked up. No wonder he's emotional. But then look at what we're told in verse 5, when one of the elders said to him, weep no more. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And, And these, of course, are all ways of referring to the Messiah, aren't they, to God's promised king, the one promised in the Old Testament. He's he's referred to as the lion uh, in Genesis 49. He's called the root of David in the book of Isaiah. So John's being told that a great victory has taken place where the Messiah of Israel, God's long-expected king, has conquered, he's triumphed. And that makes him worthy to implement God's plan for his world. You can just imagine what that's doing to John now, can't you? Because he's, he's been uncontrollably sobbing at this point, And then he hears the announcement that that kind of turns his tears to, to joy. Yes! <laughs> there is a person who can carry out God's plan. And in fact, he's coming into the throne room right now. Because John looks, verse 6, 
And before the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So here is the mighty conqueror, in other words. He's there in in, in the very throne room of heaven. Only his victory is being spoken of in kind of strange language, isn't it? He died in order to conquer. He was slain in order to become victorious. But of course he's, he's talking about the victory of Jesus on the cross, isn't he? Jesus was the lion of Judah, the root of David, the king of kings, the lord of lords. But he was also, wasn't he, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now here in the throne room of God, here in the the, the control center of the universe, he is risen, ascended, full of power and wisdom, which is what the horns and the eyes thing there uh, symbolize. And he's approaching the God, the throne of his father, to take the scroll that he might put the plan into action. You see? And friends, don't you just love what happens when he takes it? Have a look at verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed a people of God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And why does that make him Worthy to carry out the Father's plan for the future judgment of the world, the the, the future salvation and rescue of his people? Well, because it shows us he's he's perfectly carried out the Father's plan already. He's, He's the obedient son who left the splendor and the majesty of heaven in order to die on a cross, that he might save, rescue sinful rebels like like you and me from the consequences of our sin. See, friends, it was always the father's plan that he would send his son. And the son willingly followed his father's directions. And so now he's given the responsibility to carry out the rest of the father's plan. Friends, at the control room, the control center of the universe, sits a king. And the king has a plan. And what does that mean for you and me this morning? Friends, it means don't panic. Because our our temptation is to be fearful when we don't need to be. Of course, it's it's easy to believe that God is on the throne when, when things are going the way we want them to go. But these chapters of Revelation are written for people who are finding that hard to believe. Right? They face the threats, the seductions of a culture remarkably similar to our own. And they're here to give us assurance and confidence that we can keep on trusting God for our future, no matter what. We may not know all the reasons that things are happening in the way that they are, but we do know that whatever the circumstances of life, God is gracious, God is powerful, God is calm, and he has a plan. Which, of course, doesn't mean that we do nothing No, we pray and we act and we we do the best we can in the strength that that God provides. But friends, we don't need to panic. 
We don't need to panic because in the control center of the universe, in the throne room of heaven, there is a king on the throne. And he is sovereign. And through his son, he's working out his plan. Shall we pray? Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice that, that you are the, you're the beautiful, gracious, powerful, calm, holy, worthy God who sits on the throne of the universe. Uh, the one who is working out your perfect plan of judgment and salvation through your son, the Lord Jesus. The lamb who was slain to ransom a people for you. Father, we pray that this glorious reminder of your person and your plan would decrease our worry and fear and would increase our trust and our confidence. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.